Welcome to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Legendary Gear, a game called company that is legend by design. You can check them out at legendarygearusa.com. That's legendarygearusa.com. I'm George Lynch. I'll be your host and custom call designer for Legendary Gear. Our model here, if it's not good enough for George's lanyard, then it's definitely not good enough for yours. This week's episode, folks, I'm very excited and very honored to have a very pristine uh, guest on board with us, uh, Dr. Deer, Dr. James Kroll is what, whatever a lot of you might know him. You've seen him on North American Whitetail. You've read a lot of his uh, articles. I've been following him since, uh, well, quite a few years. I would say ever since uh, North American Whitetail started or about everything you can get. If you know anything about deer and, and deer management, that uh, James is always at the top of the of the line and, and uh, whatever he says, he's one of those things. He's kind of like uh, uh, E.F. Hutton. When he speaks, people listen. So um, James, Doc, welcome to uh, the Legendary Gear Podcast, actually the George Lynch Hunting Podcast. We are very uh, privileged and honored to have you on board. And uh, thank you for taking time to come with us. You're more than welcome, George. This is going to be fun. Well, if, if for our listeners out there, I know your background, and I'm sure uh, probably 90% of them out there know your background. But uh, could you give us a little bit of background between your schooling and where you where you're from and where you grew up and what state you were, and and uh, so our listeners know. Yeah. Well, you're, you're talking to the most blessed man in the world because when I was seven years old, they asked me what I wanted to be, and I said I want to be a wildlife biologist, and that's all I've ever ever done uh i often say that i haven't worked a day in my life but i've sweat a lot i got frustrated a lot but but i am blessed ain't blessed with all the things i've got to do in my career and i certainly give that credit to god and i'm taking myself but i grew up on a farm and ranch in central texas and uh, we didn't have any deer in those days uh, i remember one time we saw a track we talked about it for about two weeks but I was a hunting small game, and especially doves and rabbits and quail and that sort of thing. But uh, when I got into high school, my high school biology teacher, Victor Rippey, who I dedicated my first book to, uh, took me deer hunting. And ironically, on that hunt, I was shooting open side 30 out six. I shot a, a, a buck that has qualified for Boone and Crockett three times, although I never enter any of my bucks uh, because they've changed the the minimum score over the years, but I didn't even know at that time what Boone and Crockett was. I just knew that I killed a 10 pointer and that's how we judged things in those days. But the only reason I really got to go to college was I could play football. So I went to Baylor and then later to Texas A&M and got my degrees in, uh, in everything from animal behavior to animal physiology to wildlife management. And, uh, when I graduated, there were there were about 600 graduates in wildlife because i was one of the earth founders of earth day and we started that environmental movement everybody wanted to get into ecology which was a new word in those days and uh so there were about 600 of us graduates graduated about three jobs in the united states Hmm. so uh, i moved to uh to west virginia to coach football and i got a call from uh the dean of the forestry school at that time at Stephen F. Austin State University here in East Texas, asking me if I would come come back down to Texas, start a wildlife program, and I did. I, I jumped at it, as a matter of fact. And I went down there, and uh, I was kind of naive in those days. I was 
thinking everybody was interested in ecological problems and that sort of thing. And I found out at that point in time, people were, were a heck of a lot more interested in deer than they were in salamanders and things like that. So I said, well, heck, I've always been a deer man. I love deer. So I'm just going to, I'm going to set up a research institute here at Stephen F. Austin. And we called, we named it to this day. It's, it's here, the Institute for Whitetail Deer Management Research. Now it's not to be confused with a commercial interest called, they call themselves the Whitetail Institute or something like that. That's a business. Uh, we're a research facility. But anyway, the first thing I did was put together what, because uh, I wanted to do re re uh, uh, reliable, reasonable research that, that was actually helpful to people, realistic research. So I put together what today would be called focus groups. I brought folks in, uh, landowners, foresters, wildlife, the few wildlife biologists, only had two in a whole eastern Texas, uh, wildlife biologists and hunters, and ask them, what do you want, what do you need to know about deer? And uh, they said, well, can you plant something for deer? And I said, well, I don't know. I'll find out. We'll look into that. And in those days, there, there, were, there was no such word as food plot. Matter of fact, later on, we coined the word food plot, words food plot. And then the second thing they said was, uh, why can't we kill these deer? Well, as I later learned out, I didn't want to tell them the truth why they couldn't kill them. But we, <laughs> so we started a, um, two basic projects. Uh, one was uh, looking at, at food, uh, things we could plant for whitetails and evaluating them. And that, that was in 1974. And we still to this day are involved in that research. We have the longest running <coughs> first food plot research program in the world. And then the other thing was, uh, I, I decided to start putting radios on mature bucks. And in those days they were about a deer to 60 acres in East Texas and a a buck to 400 acres. I remember there that. Weren't, there weren't many mature bucks out there. The first mature buck I captured, we used a dart gun and, and from tree stands. And if you think bow hunting is hard, you ought to try to dart. <laughs> was, it, it was, was it a blow dart or a regular gun dart? <laughs> it, was a, it was a CO2. In those days, CO2. And then later we went to 22 uh, blank. Right. But and using some horrendous drugs in those days that that didn't do kind of things to deer. But we but it make a long story short, my first buck I caught was a four and a half year old and he I had twelve hundred hours uh wow. in capturing. And we started we figured out better and better ways to capture. We can work with rocket nets and drop nets and then all the way up over almost fifty years we have evolved to using helicopters and net guns, but in those days, we we were using the old ways, and what we found out, we started learning some amazing things about whitetail deer, about these those mature bucks, was that you know that bucks and does might uh, might as well be different species. They have different habitat preferences, and most hunters were hunting doe habitat, not buck habitat. And then we we there was, you know, I, one of the things that was nice about my career was I started when we didn't know anything, and so. Everything we everything we found out was new, and it was exciting. And uh, I, I we published all kinds of papers scientifically, and uh, I, I later said, you know, publishing as a scientist, publishing things in journals is really nice for your ego, but about twelve people read it, <laughs> and so we weren't having much impact on change because I wanted to change the way 
they were managed. Uh, so I, I gave a paper on some of our uh, radio telemetry work at a deer conference in the southeast. I believe it was in uh, Mississippi where we gave the talk. And that was in February uh, 1982. And I uh, got back home and uh, a few days later, the phone rang and my wife answered it. She said, if some guy wants to talk to you about your talks you gave. I went, okay. So I answered the phone and it was David Morris. And he says, look, we're starting up a, a new magazine. It's, uh, it's going to be called North American Whitetail. And we were at, at that meeting and heard your papers and we were very impressed with what you do and what you know. And we would want you to be a writer for us and come join us. And I said, well, you need to know I'm a scientific writer, not a popular writer. And, uh, they said, well, we, our philosophy is we would rather have good hunters, uh, then we can teach them how to write than the standard outdoor writer and teach them how to hunt. <laughs> That's so, a good philosophy. Which, which is a good philosophy, which has been the philosophy of white, North American whitetail all these years. So anyway, long story short, joined up with them. That was many years ago. And, uh, I've been, I've been writing for them. And also, uh, I was also part of the Texas trophy hunters, which started a little bit earlier than, than, uh, North American whitetail. And then, uh, we set up a demonstration area, uh, over in research area over in Georgia and, uh, uh, for, to type, you know, to test all these things, because like I was telling you, everything we were finding out was new and we didn't know anything. The flu pot stuff was especially interesting. And what we found out over there is that we could grow a lot more deer than anybody could imagine and a lot better deer by improving their nutrition. So that was a, that was a real, a real, uh, awakening for us. And that, that led to a lot of the stuff that, that we've done and produced over the years. Uh, then while, uh, we got the idea of the managing partner was Steve Vaughn. We got the idea one day we said, Hey, we need to, we need to do this on TV. And, uh, the only problem was that there wasn't any outdoor programming anymore on TV. So years ahead of time, our time the time we started scheming how we would have a show. But anyway, long story short on that, shortly after 2000, thanks to a couple of very obnoxious guys mining gold in Alaska, they came up with the outdoor channel and we had a place to have a show. And that's, as they say, that's, that's the rest the is history. Time. Is that how that, is, is that how the outdoor channel started? Was the guys are prospecting gold? Yeah. Yeah, and for a long time, the uh, the rule was uh, even after they sold it, I think the rule was they had to show that show. And I can still uh, close my eyes and hear yellow gold, yellow gold. <laughs> the gold rushes, which I know it's different, but that's one of Diane's favorite favorite shows, the gold thing. But uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. You know, it, when we're talking, when you hear managing deer, you know, a lot of people, and like you said, the the, the phase. Has been coined the coin the phrase uh, food plots. That's not you know, when I was young. I'm six years old, so I've been in it a long time. I've seen it when my dad used to, and the guys wear their red plaid up to the Upper Peninsula, of Michigan, years ago to cross the, to deer hunt because that's where our deer population were. And you know, when someone got a buck, it's a, he got a buck. We had to draw for a doe tag. 
you know, and that was, yeah. a, and then when you got the mail and you got that one doe tag, you thought, wow, it's Christmas time. But really, if just to shoot a, you know, to shoot a buck, um, when someone says, hey, I got a 10 point, you know, it was, that's what he was classified to 10 point. So nobody said how much he weighed, what age was he, you know, what did he score? And it, it's truly gotten so in depth, um, you know, with the, the uh, and you meant, I've seen that in, in some of your writings and I totally agree with you that uh, so much has been put on score of, you know, I, I haven't entered one of my deer at all either. And I believe that, that, that I score them what God gives them. They go on my wall and, and that's good enough for me. And um, I'm not trying to knock any of the organizations and that's great for those people. But for me, it's a personal thing. It's something different, um, you know, that, that the animal, but it, score was never an issue or, or something that we talked about. You know, it's it's become to me when when you know we hear people use the term trophy hunting, I to me the trophy hunting was was hunting a mature deer, and whether it was uh, you know, right. 170 inch uh, mature deer or 150 inch mature deer, that to me was the accomplishment. It, you just happen to get what you're, you know, what you're given. You go with what you're given, and uh, not everybody's blessed to have that, but. When we're talking deer management, I think of two things. And the reason I kind of got off this a little bit, but I know everybody talks about food plots and everything's about the food seed. But don't you think that to me that when you're talking deer management, it's a two-part conversation. You have deer, um, you have food plots, but you also have habitat. And don't you think both those have to go hand in hand? It's kind of a, you got to have adequate habitat and bedding and, and security for them. Oh, yeah, that, I've been on a tirade about that lately. Uh, the the basis for, for sound whitetail management is a good habitat management program where you manage native native forage. You have to remember your whitetail deer is about four feet tall. Yep. And uh, everything it has it needs it, through the year has to be from four feet to the ground. Uh, I know acorns fall from trees, but they fall into that zone. We call that the deer zone. But it's it's all about habitat management. Then there's not absolutely nothing wrong. I had a guy attack me the other day because we talked about supplemental forages and that sort of thing. But uh, there's nothing wrong with, with supplementing their diet because there are holes in their diet. Now, what you need to understand and what people need to understand is white tailed deer can get by. You know, you, you they can get by, but they don't get by optimally. And, uh, you know, doing something to... to very few places I go don't need some kind of supplement. Now, most places, you know, feeding is illegal in a lot of places nowadays, but supplemental forages are very useful for that. But like, you're exactly right. The mainstay, the, the, the groundwork is in habitat management. You got to have something that holds them there. The food will keep them and it'll keep them, especially in the in the cold. And that's what we see here in Iowa. I mean, you, there's a lot of food plots, but there's a lot of grain fields. And if you put a lot, if you don't have that habitat, you can just push those deer off, you know, the, whether if they're bedding there, or if they're just coming to your place to feed, you push them off. They'll travel across the road at dark to go feed and fill their belly. But uh, they got to have that secure, you know, once you push them out of that home range, it's pretty tough. And once a big buck has been pushed, he kind of knows a mature, I shouldn't say big buck, but a mature deer, whether it's doe or buck, they seem to know something, you know, they're being hunted. So 
that's always been like a curse to me that you're the, the trick of the deal is they know you're there. Their, their senses are so in tune. You're not fooling anybody is that, you know, to me, the job was trying to make them feel that they weren't being hunted. Yeah. You know, people treat deer like they're idiots and they're not very smart animals. I've, I've lived with them for 50 years, but, uh, they're very, very smart. You can never play the game on, on a mature bucks level. You know, the reason is if you make a mistake, it costs you a deer. If he makes a mistake, it costs him his life. Right. And he's, um, he, the, the mature buck, what we've learned about him is they're like the, 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 uh, percentage poker player, which I'm not much of a poker player, but the few times I've played it, it makes me mad when I'm have to play a percentage poker player because they're not going to bet unless it's a sure thing. And the same way with a whitetail, if there's any doubt in that deer's mind that something's not right, he's not going to take the chance. None whatsoever. So he's, yeah. You know, you just brought up something uh, about about uh, the Midwest and agriculture and all that, which is another one of my pet peeves. First of all, the, the greatest limiting factor in much of the Midwest is winter thermal cover. Is that there's not a lot of winter thermal cover in the Midwest and winter thermal cover is basically something constructed out of conifers and you don't, you don't see a lot of that. And the other thing is there's this huge misconception that I get people all the time on my Facebook page and say, well, we don't need to plant food plots. We got all this agriculture. Really? You got two kinds of plants they are growing out there. Both of which are roundup ready. You got corn and you got beans on a rotation. I've been all over those wood lots and stringers, in uh, in your country and Illinois and all the other ones, the browse is hammered. Right. And what those fields in October, they are clean, bare ground. So, you know, that's that's fine in any agriculture, but you're going to have to. Uh, the, I think the days are pretty well numbered in the Midwest. For, I think we're going through the good old days right now <clears throat> because there's a lot of habitat deterioration going on up there. I agree 100%. I agree with that. You know, it isn't just the whitetails. We see it in, in, you know, being from Michigan and Iowa both, but I've seen uh, a lot of good uh, pheasant and quail cover because of changing farming practices and, and, and changing and, and, and plowing the fence rows and plowing the fence, the ditches and stuff that it, there's been yeah. a, you know, I don't care what the DNR said. There is a huge decline in our pheasant and, and uh, quail population in the last three years. I would say the last five years. Peasants are declining everywhere. Yeah. And we've seen that with turkeys this year, Doc. I mean, we uh, hopefully one day you'll get to come here and stay with me and, and either do some duck or goose hunting or you could do some deer hunting. But uh, where we sit, we sit kind of back in the middle of nowhere. And during turkey season, we walk out in the morning on our deck and then try to figure out which gobbler we want to go after. And I'm telling you, the whole season, and I am a, we sell the turkey products, but by the end of the season, I really didn't want to hunt them because I felt, I mean, why do I want to go kill them? We had four tags and we didn't even want to fill one. It was just, it was that bad. They're down, you know, you hear everybody, and I don't know the reason. I do know that the coon populations, I'm here at the house trying to to, to keep them down. And, they're, they're, you know, the guy that used to trap this area, he, he left maybe four years ago. And he trapped it hard, a young kid, trapped it hard, kept the raccoon population at least kind of stable. And I don't know if you ever get them to decline, but he kept them stable. But now they're just out of control. So, you know, I do know that the the bobcats increase, the um, 
you know, the coons increase, possums increase, so the turkeys don't have much of a chance of survival. But, uh, you know, speaking of bobcat, I got a, uh, I had a spot that I hunted over in, in Decatur County. I always had a trail camera up, you know, watching your bucks. And to the question of anybody ever wondered if a bobcat would attack a deer, I had a picture of a deer about, it was like 2.30 in the morning. And I see this blur and the deer is just starting to move. And I see this blur, so I blow the picture up and it's on its back. And then you can look and it's a bobcat jumping on the back of this deer with his mouth open and his claws, ha! And of course, in the next picture, there was nothing. And I went out there and walked around to see that, but uh, I guess the bobcat do um, will attack whitetails. George, we had a big male bobcat kill a three-year-old 180-class deer a few years back. No way. Uh, yeah, I guarantee you they did. Well, you know, when I was when I was a kid growing up on on a ranch, uh, it was every landowner's patriotic duty to kill predators, and we didn't have any predators and uh, any predator problems, and deer populations began to explode across the whole country starting in the south and, and then again in mid, midwest and lake states you know we were preaching shooting does in those days which is still a legitimate management practice but in those days because there were no other sources of mortality to speak of including disease you you could shoot a lot of does bring the herd down and, and the herd would reward you with a big fawn crop and those fawns would survive over the last 30 years what we've seen, predator populations, and I'm talking about what they call mesopredators or mega predators, are started have roared back, and uh, what we have now is the mortality in whitetail deer, which includes predation, disease, starvation, cold, and automobiles. Each of those contributes to the mortal total mortality of a deer herd. Absolutely. And the, they're additive, not not compensatory. They're additive, and so when you get to predators, we now have a suite of predators, many of which are specialists. Let me run through that suite. Okay, we got the the one of the worst one of all, the coyote. The coyote uh, got into the southeast and then up through the, the the Atlantic states by way of the hill country of Texas, uh, where they brought in sheep and goat ranching in the hill country of Texas it allowed the coyote which was basically a desert animal to get across the Edwards Plateau in central Texas and then move through the south and up the Atlantic coast and also at the same time from the wet northwest in Montana and those states the coyotes were moving eastward through your country and the coyote is a, is a significant predator but they're sort of they're sort of generalists I mean they're you know they'll they'll take They'll take any deer they can get, whether it be a fawn or whatever. But they, they like they're pretty good fawn predators. All right, then the next one is that I'm having to deal with all the time now are black bears. Black wow. bears are specialized fawn predators. They can smell many times better than a bloodhound, and that's uh, it's a misconception that that fawn. You how many times have you heard that fawns have no scent? That's I've heard. Nonsense. Oh yeah, yeah. That's not. And a bear. We've watched bears. They have a uh, they have a very organized search pattern when when fawns are hitting the ground, and we watch bears search and find and eat. And studies have shown that in some states they're eating as many as half the fawn crop. Wow! So you got the 
Okay, <clears throat> now we have we have lions coming back dramatically, and and a lot of states that we've dealt with, the hunters get frustrated because their state agency tells them they don't have any lions, and these guys are. I mean, we got trail cameras nowadays. Don't don't blow smoke, and the lions are coming back, and they are they are significant deer predators. They a female lion with kids kids is going to uh, kill at least two deer a week. Mm. That's pretty substantial. And then now we got the big, the big mammoth of all of them, and that's the the gray wolf. And we got gray wolves moving moving south and east rapidly. And the poor, I feel sorry for the hunters up in northern Minnesota. Age old hunting camps are closing down because there are no deer. The, uh, you know, my, my friend of mine told me one time we were talking about wolves and the situation with wolves and what we need to do. And, he said, you know, there's a reason why we killed them out. And I said, what was that? He said, well, they were competing with us. You know? And uh, he was right. The wolves are incredibly efficient deer predators. And, and studies have shown that where there are large populations of wolves, the only place you find white-tailed deer is in the areas where wolf territories overlap. Because the wolves won't buy, the, each pack won't violate that territory. Which, which tells us that deer were pre-adapted to having sanctuaries, by the way. Wow. So we got the wolves. Bobcats are not the biggest ones, but they're they're adding to it as well. When you each one of those got a contribution to to mortality, when you add them all up, it can be really substantial, and it certainly is nowadays. We we've, we've got a place we've managed for some years now in northern the northern uh, lower peninsula of Michigan. Where we started up, we were having very low recruitment, and we started up a major, a major coyote control program. And this, last year, our, this year, our recruitment rate is 94 percent. Wow! So that's so very predator, good. Now, I don't want to come across as being let's kill all the predators. You know, I, I'm an ecologist. I like I like the predators out there, but I don't want to feed them a lot either. And everything's out of balance. They have to be managed just like deer have to be managed. That's what I was getting ready to say, Doc. I mean, everything has a, has to have balance. Even you could have too much deer on a property and they can starve in the wintertime. I mean, you're correct. There's a balance. I used to, we actually, we we uh, sell a lot of product to Jay Sporting Goods up there, uh, Claire and Gaylord. And um, yeah. I, I used to go up there, and, and Bill Hahn, the buyer, is a close friend of mine, and I'd stay with him. But they always had a big coyote um, contest every year up there. And there are some hardcore predator hunters, and, and you're, you're exactly right. Well, something that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around, and, and I think I know the reason, but I'm going to ask you, what do you think is, is caused to have been the stimulus for the rebirth of predators coming back? Is it because of oh. too, a lot more protected land that people aren't, you know, they're buying properties and skits and they keep it protected and, and the, you know, they're moving in or is it lack of hunters just don't have the drive to go out and shoot them? Well, I think you're, I think you're pretty close there. <laughs> That's uh, what land, I land use has changed. We've had a lot of fragmentation and a lot of folks buying up land, smaller and smaller pieces, they're to the point where it's unmanageable. But they have been watching the Discovery Channel and and uh, National Geographic channels too long. They think predators are just you know perfectly good animals, and they they're certainly not going to support doing anything about about uh, predators. 
And uh, then the, you're, you're right also, hunters, they complain all the time about predators, but they do nothing. Nothing. To, uh, nothing. You you know, I, I'll have a hunter come in, and he'll tell me about the deer he saw, and he said, oh, yeah, and I, this coyote came by. And I said, did you kill him? No. I said, why not? Well, I didn't want to run my hunt. <laughs> besides that, besides, yeah, besides that, you know, what's one coyote? I said, let me let's, let me give you this scenario. You let that coyote go, go, all right. Quarter mile down the way, he he uh, jumps up a fawn, a buck fawn, and kills it. And that buck fawn was going to be a Bunny Crockett buck. What was the impact of that coyote? Yeah. So devastating. Yeah, I mean, you, you just can't get hunters to. They'll complain, but they won't do anything about it. I, you know, it's it's funny because uh, we've had people, friends of ours, who lived here their whole life, and we moved out here, and they talk about the coyotes. Of course, we hear them all, almost every night, and uh, so you hear them, and then but you find out that uh, very few, you know, they haven't hunted them, and they're big deer hunters. So that was one of the things I, my wife and I, you know, she, we uh, got married late in life, and she comes from New Hampshire. She's very outdoors. But it's a different world, you know. She's around lakes and oceans and granite, and I bring her to the Midwest. And of course, then we got muddy lakes and big straight fields. And but she'd never been involved in hunting, and uh, this is her third be her third year. But she's killed a couple of nice bucks. She's killed waterfowl. She's killed. But I took her out her first night. I said, I'll tell you what we got to do is we got to, the neighbors complaining about getting a lot of coyotes on pictures, and there's a great big one. Let's go get it. You know, let's go get them. She was all game, and the first night I set her up in a, in a out. I left our A-frame blind out in the field where we goose hunt for purposely just for chopping coyotes. And uh, I took her and set her in a 223, and we took our Fox Pro, went over and, and set the speaker. I hid the four-wheeler, and I mean, we had probably 15 minutes of, of light left, and I hit that collar to the locator. Oh, my gosh, they lit up. And Sarah and I both looked at each other like, Holy crap, this is what we've been living with. And yeah. they came, I mean, I turned it to pup in distress and they came out so quick, Jane. I mean, they came out and the first one that stopped out, I looked at her and I said, you better shoot him quick. And I don't care where you hit him. And she go, well, he isn't old and still. I don't care where you hit him. Just shoot that pot liquor. He, and she says, he's a wolf. I didn't know we had wolves here. And I said, that is a big coyote. <laughs> so she shot him and then it wasn't... Uh, a minute later, there's no one running out in the field. We stopped and she shot. So, but what I'm saying is, because we took the effort, she killed two dogs within 10 minutes. And you could definitely tell they hadn't been hunted because they were, they came out of the woods, didn't they? But yeah. it's just, you're absolutely right. People complain about it. And at least with, the, I mean, the coyote, you kind of sit here and he'll kill to eat, but a wolf will kill to kill. He's like an eagle, they like killing. And he doesn't necessarily always eat what he kills. He's just, they're a killing machine. And they're, they're incredible killing machines. They really are. And uh, they, they don't give a hoot about conservation. Let me tell you, they're, 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 they are killing machines. There's a great book out there, Doc. I don't know if you've read it, but it's called Wolfman. And it was written by a guy in the 19th. Yeah. What a great book. I, I always yeah. was thought that, uh, Wolves, you know, they were special and all this stuff until I read his book and you learn, I mean, his experience, what he did that is this guy killed wolves. He protected guys from the oil, uh, oil lines and stuff like that, the pipelines. And he would he was like a stander and he would shoot 
wolves that come out and then they hunted them from airplane but all the stories and the wolf was a kill it's a it's a, a a devil i mean he kills everything and they're big so um what do you see in 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 this does the state you know does the department is this something that pretty much i would say that the predators is something that we have to take on ourselves as maybe as a as a private landowner i don't think as a group that the you know we, i respect our department of natural resources and i know they got their hands full but i don't think this is anything that they in fact i just know a lot of states that i don't know if the, the deer numbers are number one of their concern yeah you're absolutely right so you're, you're not going to get any help from dnrs uh there's been a big change, uh, you know, some for good and some some not regarding whitetails. But uh, the average uh, employee of a state game agency right now is not a hunter. They, quite frankly, a lot of, of my colleagues, and I'm, I'm criticizing my profession right now, are, are a growing number of anti-hunters, and they really don't like deer. And they look upon predators, especially especially in countries that, countries that's got wolves, they look at them as a substitute for hunting. And they can take away our argument that we're that we're an important part of wildlife management. So you don't have that many hunters anymore in the agencies. And uh, it, it's astonishing to me that uh, there are states that I work with <clears throat> that have got, you know, incredible populations of coyotes and bobcats, but yet they have a season on them. Right. You know, that, yeah. That's lunacy. Uh, in my Iowa, yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. I agree with that. You know, and and I don't want to get off topic too much here, but and I'm not going to bash it, but I'm just going to share. Well, I never experienced it until I moved here, and um, of course, you know, we our, our property we butt up to to public land and and uh, different things, and through the years, I've seen. I mean, I'd drive hunting, and I'm not going to get into, the, you know, whatever each one. I've gotten some flack from some friends here, and I had pro staffers from here, but I just never understood their intensity of the driving that they do. And I never want to cut down anybody's um, style of hunting. I just have questions on the efficacy of it. And um, on state land here, we've seen people from 18 to 30 guys pile through our property and I went one year and took video and drove down. I mean, our lane's probably almost a mile long, but down the road, they're pulled in people's private driveways. Um, there's people sitting every 50 yards and four in a car with holding their shotguns. And then there was the whole troop that drove through state land. They actually drove their vehicles on federal land. And they went through and annihilated every, I mean, every, they, there wasn't a process of a selection. It was annihilation. And, and that kind of scares me. But, uh, and I, I firsthand sat there in the road and watched these guys sitting, you know, standing arm in arm. And there had to be maybe 40 in the group, 35, 40. And I watched deer being wounded. I watched deer not being followed up. Now, the, the uh, conservation officer did a great job by the time I called him and getting out here. And they caught people shooting with rifles, guys with no hunting license. They got guys with um, um, trespassing. And the thing about it, Doc, he, he'll sit there and name the people. He knows where they're from. They're from another county up by Des Moines, but they have played. But it's the same group of people. 
And the conversation I watched this guy as I was standing there, that was I was talking to him. I said, you know, you guys are trespassing. And his comment was, well, we just pop in and pop out. And I'm looking at him and I just can't. And he's got his kids standing next to him. I'm thinking, wow, this is our future. And this is who's teaching. And uh, there happened to be a, a group of deer that they pushed out of my bottom there. And they all started wailing. And I look and they're shooting directly at my neighbor's house. So I yell at him and say, hey, you know, you're shooting this. So as the deer, there's a, you know, probably a 130-inch bucket. To them, they just, it it didn't matter. They shot everything that came out. But they cut behind my truck, the deer did, because there was posters on the uh, east road so they could see that. So they cut behind my truck, and I could see one of the does, and I could see the buck limping. So the guy, he's in the road 15 yards from this buck, and he's looking at and I'm looking at him like, are you really going to do this in front of me? And he backs off and he just said, ah, I would have been ready. I'd have killed that deer. And I said, you know, you did wound him. You should go after him. And his reply was, nah, I killed enough this weekend. And so I put up with this and I've been very vocal that this is what I see. And I'm not trying to, people think that here, because you know, it, it started some, I opened a lot of kegs and nails here. And uh, I had guys, you know, some guys, it's a tradition and, you know, we've been doing it for years, and other guys, they agreed that it was a problem, the trespassing. And I just said that non-selection of, of taking whitetail is not a good idea anywhere, whether it's private or public. But the point I was trying to get, if you want to drive hunt on, on private ground, I mean, that's awesome because everybody knows where they're going to be, and everybody knows where you planted. But if you have state land, and I'm a dad with two kids, and I go out there and set my boys, took them out a couple of days earlier, showed them how to read sign, showed them how to watch the wind, build a blind, and set an ambush. And they go out there open in the morning, and here's 30 guys driving to them and shooting. It's just not a – and I've tried to talk to the DNR. And I said, it's just not a safety uh, – sooner or later, someone's going to get shot. It's just – and then, like I said, the, the selection of deer. Yeah, that <clears> – <throat> That, those traditions are dying, fortunately. But you know how uh, drives and hunting with dogs came about? No. It, it came about after they had, around 1900, after they had shot the deer herds down to somewhere between 300,000 and 500,000 in the entire United States. Wow. They couldn't anymore because the populations were too low. So they changed hunting tactics to drives in the a lot in the north they had drives in the south they had hunting with hounds and that was to get the last ones out and some people say that one of the reasons why deer uh behavior is such today is that the only deer that didn't get killed were the ones that had aberrant behavior mm. that stayed in thick places and 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 moved at odd times and uh we watched we had the same problem you had here in the south with when I came to East Texas, it was all dog hunting, and we—it was a nightmare. You know, they were shooting at houses, they were doing all the things you just described, but that all—that all is gone now, and a lot of it's going because a lot of, there's a lot of private deer management now, and a lot of folks like you who are, are not putting up with this kind of thing. You know, and the—I've been very critical about the way public lands are managed. I'm all for uh, public hunting, but these a lot of these agencies think that all they have to do is go buy somebody's farm and put it in a public hunting program, and then the public will have a great hunt there and have a great time. 
they, that has to be followed up by management. And the real deer management, real white-tailed deer management in this country is happening on private lands. Yep. That's the truth. That's what I said that, you know, in Iowa, people ask me, and I'm not trying to knock any agency, but they said, you know, I mean, I'm, guys, I've been out here. The reason they got good deer hunting and it's not all over, it's it's just certain areas. And it's from the private landowner who, who cares enough to, who wants to have, you know, he's got a goal and he's put the effort and, and the expense. And that's the reason why there's certain areas down there and you got the neighbors who are Biden and the QDMA, whatever they call it. But it, that's why Iowa has great deer hunting. And, and it's and probably the lower population, human population, it helps in, in the certain areas, but it's, it's directly not directed by the state. That's for sure. No. Well, I got a question for you too that I've read in there and you brought up a great uh, point and we're going to put a we're, we're putting a pond on our property this year and we're putting in my first time we're having a guy actually bulldoze the full plot the food plot and everything we'd have done it by now but we can only get it to get the guy until july but we we have the plans and we're putting the pond in and they're going to put the food plot and we border uh the refuge anyway up here and and, and we will see some good deer but what I've noticed here, and I've tried to explain these guys during that, is usually the worst in the second shotgun season when they're doing the drives. I said, you understand that these deer, I watch them out here, and I pay attention to these deer, but these deer, by the time the second shotgun season, they've been pushed that first one, but they're getting dehydrated. And if we don't have any snow, pretty much if you look, the lake is frozen up, all the creeks are frozen up, um there's you know we haven't had rain if we don't have snow then those deer you, when you're getting pushed and driving they're they're gonna suffer a form of dehydration and i see that with in the and you'd see that the deer at that time doc would start leaving the food plot that, that you know there wasn't groups coming in the safety they were expanding and leaving and in my opinion i think they were looking for moisture they're looking for water and i know philip was hunting across the lake from me uh, one year with a filming with an outfitter and i just mentioned to him i said philip these deer are they're 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 in, they're in danger of dehydration and he said they filmed a doe coming to the pond where the ice and was trying to dig with her foot to get through the ice and uh that's something i think people so i've you know in my opinion the idea of the pond was to try to have something open in the later season with because being more we're kind of in that south line where we don't get the snow like we did in michigan so if they don't get the snow it's just frozen gone so if we put the pond here and 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 offer some water but you brought up a great point that i'm looking at that i'm going to have to have probably two water sources i'm looking at maybe an early water source and a late season water source and the, i'd like to you know, you had the idea you were talking about having um Oh, you have you you have water troughs, but having artificial water, and how important that yep. is. And I agree with that. And I think because when I first moved out here, I know in 2012, Iowa suffered uh, one of the worst cases of, of EHD that they had. And then was it three years ago, I think we we got it again, three or four years ago. And that that, that I think the DNR told me that was their second worst. Um, of EHD. So I can see what you're saying with the artificial water, you know, having it so they're not in the mud and the concentration of other deer and trying to keep them away from the midgets of the pond. Um, is that your purpose of the artificial water? Yeah, uh, artificial water 
is very, very important, whether it be a pond or it be water troughs. We, we like water troughs uh, <clears throat> for that reason that you said, it reduces uh, gnat populations. But water is one of the most critical elements uh, in deer nutrition, and people people ignore it. Uh, and there's a misconception about winter use of water. Deer use as much or more water in the winter than they do in the summer because a lot of metabolism is going on, and it requires a lot of use of water. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right, and that's caught on. That's one of the things we came up with several years ago, and it's really caught on is putting that, that water out there you know, uh, and there's creative ways to to keep the water from you know freezing up. You don't want to trough this frozen solid, <coughs> or even a pond. So a lot of guys break break ice and everything else. Some guys, if they, I, there's some guys I know that that if even strung an electrical line, so they could have a heater and a water trough for their deer. Oh yeah, but it's very useful. You know that that EHD thing. Uh, people always worry. I hear, you know, this obsessive talk about chronic wasting disease uh but yet it's it has not been documented to have actually killed a lot of deer but i always say when you compare chronic wasting disease to hemorrhagic disease which is what you're talking about I, i'm reminded the bible it, it says that saul has killed his thousands but david, david has killed, killed ten thousand yeah yeah and his ehd and they, a lot of these agencies are are have been saying in the past, and a lot of northern hunters have been saying in the past, well, that's a southern disease. Well, they'd be wonder if they'd be interested to know that the type of localities in 1957 was New Jersey and Michigan. That's where they discovered them. And then I had a, a very unenlightened biologist say not too long ago that that CWD was a big problem because it was an artificial disease, and EHD is a natural disease, and it's it's that's ridiculous. The the two strains of EHD that are killing, they're monstrously killing our deer right now are EHD2 and EHD6, and both of those are are exotic of origin, so they're Seriously. not a they're variety at all, and so they're we're going to be dealing with EHD, especially if climate change is a is a real thing, and and we can talk about that all day long, but uh, you know we're going to see warmer climates. Uh, and uh, when you see warm climates, you're going to see the availability of gnats further and further into the season. I noticed, uh, and it makes a good point. We're here this year. I mean, we've always had ticks here. But, Doc, yeah. I'm telling you, I've not seen the ticks as bad as they are this year. I mean, yeah. we've, saying that. it is, I've, I don't know, and the tiny ones. I mean, you can barely see them crawling on your skin and, and stuff yeah. and, and we uh we have a cottage here that uh people can come and stay that used to be this is an old duck camp and that was the caretaker's place and but we had uh some people in there last week or so and they get to watch the wildlife come in the yard and stuff but they were telling me they were watching the does come in the back and one of the does's ears was just full of ticks oh yeah and they'll break down the cartilage in the ears too yeah I had a picture one year. I sent it to my buddy who was on my pro staff. He's a CEO up by Des Moines, but he sent it to the biologist. I had a doe and a fawn on picture, and the fawn couldn't have been that old. But the doe, they had these black warts all around her face and her eyes, and then the fawn got it so bad that they both they, they enclosed their eyes. Mm-hmm. Those are called fibromas. It's a viral disease related to herpes. 
Really? Deer. Uh, the only time it kills deer is when is when it uh, gets you know so so bad around their face they can't see. And most of them uh, will get over it. Those all those fibromas will, will drop off. That's one of the <clears throat> probably top three questions we get asked all the time. People get in touch with. Well, I, I shot this deer and it had all these big black warts all over it. Can I eat it? You go. Well, yeah. You're talking about the warts or you're talking about the venison? Right. The venison has <laughs> a skin. Yeah, you don't want to eat the warts. The number one question is, I killed a deer and hung it up, and there's these white worms laying on the ground. What are they? I mean, can I eat the deer? You say, they're bots. And yes, you can eat the deer. You wonder, you know what's scary is how many uh, deer carcasses were left in the woods because people didn't understand about that. that, That's right. Amen. I believe that. That's a shame. But... um, When you, uh, if you're, you know, if you have advice, you're getting a guy who just, and I understand that it's, that deer management is all based on, you know, what size of land you have to work with, what you, you know, money, what what kind of money do you have to work with? What kind of, uh, how many acres are we talking? But if you're an average Joe that went out there and say you bought 20 acres of property and he said, Hey, you know, I got, I'm going to try to make a little deer habitat for myself. What would be the first thing? Would you concentrate uh, the first thing when you tell somebody, do you concentrate more on how to, where to establish the food plot? Or do you talk about maybe trying to, to establish habitat first, then the food plot? Well, you can manage deer. I don't care how much land you got or don't have. You can manage deer and make your situation better. <clears throat> it's better if you can work with your neighbors, but unfortunately, most of the neighbors nowadays are absentee landowners, so there's nobody to work with. Right. But I always tell that the the basic management unit size for a white-tailed deer, the, the, the area during the non-rut season the deer would actually like to occupy is about 80 acres. Now, I know everybody out there has got 80 acres. No, they don't. But what we do is we we put uh, an 80-acre block around a piece of land, say you got 30 acres, and then you, you examine everything around your land and see what utility those properties have for deer and what is lacking and then so you you try to make your place one-stop shopping for the deer and make it make it the place to be and one of the most important things you can do is establish in the middle of your property a sanctuary and it doesn't have to be very big but an area where where you don't go in where the deer are safe from hunters and you'll be shocked if you do that, how the deer population of your land will increase. Here at our research institute, when we first started, by we we used that philosophy, I guess, for 40 years. But by the by the fifth day of, of opening season, our deer population had doubled or tripled on the facility. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot you can do. Uh, we have a spot, my wife and I, and our, that we really never go into. It's the closest spot to the house, but it sits in a ravine. It's very thick. Um, we have trails that we take that go beyond that to get closer, you know, further out in the property. But we never step. I never step, and it's very thick. You got to crawl through to get through it. And I've seen some good bucks come out of the outer out of that. But I had my son in there showing him where to to set up, and uh, he said, "Well, can we walk?" I said, "Man, I really don't want to walk through this, but we'll go a little ways." 
and then I stopped, but I said, I'm just kind of give you an, the, the showing of the property. And we walked a little bit into the thicket and I looked up and I saw, we saw a big buck get up and boom. The story of the thing is we walked over where he was laying and there was big rubs all over. And from there I could look and see right in the backyard and in, in the front of our house. Well, actually the front yard in the front of our house. But that buck has been living and laying, you know, not 75 yards from our home. And you know that he has to see us walking and that he's got content because he could sit there and watch us, smell whatever. But, you know, he was content sitting there watching us with it. But when we stepped within the came in the other direction, it, he wasn't accepted. But you're right. They, it doesn't take much property uh, that they'll hold and use as a sanctuary. That's absolutely true. It, what would be your... Uh, best advice for the guys going out. I mean, we scout, you know, we sit here and they put corn out to get pitchers. And that's another thing I'll see in states that a lot of people it's, and I understand they don't can't afford to put in their own food plots and stuff like that. But um, the thing that you see that people using, especially in Michigan and Ohio, the baiting of corn. Um, do you think that is kind of detriment to the deer going into the winter? Or do you think it helps them? It puts fat supply or it's not the right nutrition? Well, there's a huge difference between baiting and supplementally feeding. The first time I the first time I ever went to Michigan to give a talk, my, my host put me up at his house and he was all he was very proud for me to sleep in a particular room because outside of that room was uh, his bait pile with a big light on <laughs> February. Yeah, oh yeah. In the middle I woke up and I looked out the window and standing on, on a six foot tall pile of sugar beets was a doe gnawing at frozen sugar beets. <laughs> and that, that made a pretty substantial impression on me. Now, because biologists haven't really liked supplemental feeding for years and the CBD is certainly a good way to get people not to do it. But, uh, where it's legal, uh, supplemental feeding, true supplemental feeding, can be a useful management uh, tool. Again, in in the hierarchy of things, have native forage, supplemental forage, and then if legal, uh, supplemental feed. But the, the kinds of things that people are feeding these deer are not benefiting them. You know, they're they're not benefiting them all. And, and you need if you're going to supplementally feed deer, you need to go with a with a, a sound, well balanced nutrition. Uh, we we try to put deer into the fall especially in the north and with as much stored fat as we can bucks that is and the best way to do that is to give them a lot of digestible energy in the in the late uh, late august early september and that's why those cool season plots are so important but oddly enough in the north more attention is put into summer plots than are in cool season plots which is it's it's backwards, backwards. Back, we both Back. said that. I agree with you 100%. You got foliage, you got everything that's out there in the warm weather. I mean, that deer can get nutrients and they're going to feed. They're not going to starve. The problem that you're going to draw, the guy who has has the food source in the late season when it's bitter cold, he's going to have the animals. Yep. That's absolutely right. Well, Doc, I'm looking in also, you had a couple other things. I was looking through your contact information and stuff, but... Could you elaborate a little bit on buck forage and wild tree? Sure, I can. <clears throat> when we first started uh, doing that food plot research back in the 
in the late seventies, early eighties. What I did is I went to, I went to, uh, it was logical. Uh, people wanted us to know, wanted to know what we could plant for deer. Well, I gave them some thought and I said, okay, who is, should know more about growing forages for ruminants than anybody? And, I, and I, the answer was dairymen. So I went to dairymen and I said, what do y'all plant? They plant cereal grains and legumes, clovers, usually, usually. And so that's what, what started our research program. Now, at that time, uh, the oats being planted, and, and no matter where you're talking about, especially here in the South, was just plain old, a lot of times just plain old feed oats. Or there was a there was an oat that came along called Bob Oats, that they uh, and Jerry Oats, which they planted. Well, we didn't like them because the first time temperature got below 28 degrees, they froze. And besides that, uh, oats, in my knowledge about oats at that point in time, was they, they were all being grown for grain, which means you don't want a lot of, of, of forage there. You want a, a stalk that co- goes up and makes a big head of grain. So I was very anti-oak uh, for a number of years. And I was planting a lot of wheat because it was cold tolerant. Well, in the early 80s, a fellow named John Butler called me from Arkansas and said, you know, I, I want to talk to you about, about oats. And I went, oh, God. Well, okay, what's the deal? And he said, uh, I know you don't like oats because they freeze out. But I've, I've come up with a, an oat, a, a cool season oat, winter oat, uh, that doesn't freeze out. And I said, yeah, that's interesting, which everybody knows me. If I ever say something you say is interesting, it, it, is, a, it is a way of saying you're an idiot. <laughs> so, so anyway, he said, well, I, all I'm asking is you, I'm going to send you some, put it in your test program, and I'll call you in a year. I said, I can't argue with that agreement. So he sent me these, this seed, and I planted it. And as luck would have it, that year we got down to about oh, 12 degrees here. And uh, he called, I forgot, you know, I was just scratching my head over it. And he calls me a year later. He said, what do you think? I said, how did you do that? And he said, I'm, I'm telling you, I, I don't take any credit for it. I accidentally discovered these oats, but they, they handle freezing very well. And so I started working with them. And... Uh, we had a uh, research program that goes to this day, breeding program, partnered with uh, LSU. And we're now in our, in the last 38 years, we've released three, just three varieties of oats. And they're the real thing. They have uh, multiple, they have, we call them tillers. There's a lot like a, like a lawn with puts out a lot of runners. It's designed for grazing. It's designed to be cold hardy. And it's it has more water and alcohol soluble carbohydrates than the wheat or especially rye. Rye is not a very good thing to be planting for deer. So anyway, so that I have a longstanding research and development relationship with Buck Forage, and I trust them. I've only endorsed maybe I don't know if it's six or seven things in my entire career. And in order for me to endorse something, I have to be part either part of the development or have tested it for eons. And that was that was the story behind Buck Forage. And then a few years ago, we started a lot of research, again, going back to ways to supplement digestible energy. We were looking at fruit and nut trees that could be planted for deer and started doing a lot of research on that. And I came up with this, with this unique pair, called, we call it the Dr. Deer pair, that is unbelievable. Uh, 
it holds its fruit way into the winter. But uh, a guy named Jonathan Judice came to see me one day and wanted to know if he was thinking about putting together a company. They were in the nursery business down in Houston and putting together a company, a company that produced fruit and nut trees specifically for deer and tailored to each geographic area. And so I did a lot of research on Jonathan and found out he's a highly ethical guy and a good businessman. So we started working with them and, uh, and now wild tree is going like gangbusters. And in the meantime, uh, wild tree has, has, uh, picked up buck forage. They got a, they've got a nice agreement with, with the Butler family on buck forage. So it's a, it's a, it's a real deal. It's a, it's a sound company with sound products and, the thing I've learned in, uh, in all these years of doing food plot research, there's only five plants that work. You can't ask me about any plant that we haven't tested in multiple areas, but it all boils down to about five plants and varieties. And it always goes back to cereal grains and legumes, just like the dairyman told us. With one exception, over the years, we accidentally discovered what then was a new plant called chicory. And chicory has turned out to be one of our one of our real mainstays also but that's that's the story behind all of that deer and turkey both are heavy on that chicory aren't they oh yeah oh yeah yeah it's a good plant it's a perennial uh cold very very cold hardy uh it's it's a wonderful plant and uh that we're we're in a breeding program on that we've we accumulated all 126 known varieties of chicory from around the world and broken it down brought it down to 23 then we broke it down to 10 and now we have two and in the next three to five years we'll probably release a new variety of chicory what's your opinion of using peas oh the peas for summer forage we've we've come up with a couple of peas uh in the south that that work very well have high high yield and about as attractive as anything could be the problem with, uh, and those are varieties of cowpeas. Uh, the problem with cowpeas is the minute they stick their head up out of the ground, a deer going to eat them. And so that, that's when we started to apply some of the research we, we did back in the late 70s on electric fencing for deer, uh, which we've got a three-wire uh, design that we came up with, which a lot of people are using now and selling kits for. That works very well so we can bank that forage uh, in the north, we're right now in a breeding program with some cold hardy green peas that, that looks good right now, but I can't, I can't say that, that we have the answer yet, but we've got, we've got a, some good candidates that we're in the middle of field testing now. Um, but those electric fences are one of the best things I ever came up with. You know, well, we also invented the trail camera. No way. I made a dime from it, but, but yeah we did but anyway the the three wire fence what we do uh especially it benefits small landowners is uh one of the things we do in michigan because we got a lot of uh, neighbors that you know shoot a deer a minute across the fence is we we grow corn and soybeans uh fenced in the summer and we bring them all the way to snow and then we then we take the uh, electric fence down and that we call it banking forage and the deer you you own the deer when you've got one of those plots on your property in october november and december uh because that's it's got all the calories and everything they need right then and there so 
our fence system has been one of the things I'm very proud of. It's starting the use is starting to spread all over the country. I saw that on your page, Doc. I was that very it was interested to me because interesting to me because you know we just put in a garden like you said. We're, we live here in the middle of nowhere, and that, our biggest um, I would say the thing that we have to adversary that we have to worry about between the uh, the rabbits was the deer and um, your fencing deal. Now, is that operated and run by a solar battery like we use on our horse fence here? Is that uh, is that what you use? Can yeah. we use a, uh, a tape fence? We use a yeah. We, we have that for we our use, horses. We use uh, uh, three strands, and two of them are, are pot. They're, they're synthetic now with stainless steel wire in them. We use two poly yeah. wire strands on the inside and then an outrigger with a poly tape and that that works real well it's the energizer that is the big thing uh, you know we tell people to use our design can you go down to some tractor store and buy the cheapest energizer down there we don't all bets are off you got to have a good one probably the best one out there is the gallagher systems uh it's interesting you said horse because uh it was a horse that that invented the that helped invent the electric fence. Uh, <laughs> Gall- Mr. Gallagher in New Zealand had a Willis vehicle that he t- was particularly fond of, but he had a horse named Joe that would come up to the horse to the vehicle and, and rub against it. It was doing some damage, so he hooked up a magneto to the to the <laughs> vehicle and put wires around it. And when Joe would rub the make the truck move. It generated electricity and it shocked Joe. It got Joe's and attention, then, huh? <laughs> yeah. From that, came up with, with well, hey, I got I raised sheep, so he made an electric fencing for sheep, and and now today the, the the original place where electric fencing came from in New Zealand, the big factory and office down there in, in New Zealand, they their their lunchroom is called Joe's place. <laughs> That's cool. You know we. Uh, we have, my wife is a big horse advocate. We have two Tennessee walkers. They're kind of our kids. And they, we have north of us, we have a 20 acre field they stay in. And then here at the house, and I told her when we first, because she wanted them here close to home. So I pounded po- uh, fence post around the whole property by hand. And then we laid the, uh, we got the tape. Uh, we put two strands of the tape with a wire inside it, and but you're right, we we bought the best uh, energizer we could get, and it, with a solar battery on it, and then we got a 12 by 50 deck that we can sit and look at the lake. But we put the horse crowl under the deck, so I tell people if you have a horse crowl under your deck, you might be a redneck, but those horses, they just might, you know that fencing works amazing. It's uh, as yeah. long as long as the energizer's working. As long as you have it grounded properly, that's the, the second biggest mistake people make is they don't have enough grounding rods. Right. And, uh, they'll call and complain about something not working, and it's either the energizer or the lack of grounding. So. Well, you you brought up a good point, and I see on your fencing that you, you use three strands. I take it back; I was corrected. We have one strand that the horses that we put up about chest level. But I've watched the deer. The deer, it never deterred them because they just learned to walk underneath it. They got zapped a couple times and they got a little goofy. Then they learned to, you know what, I just walk underneath it. And they just go back and forth. Um, But the three strands would definitely, and then you offset the strands. Is that how your kit works? Yeah. You you put two inner strands at 12 and 24 inches. 
then you come out three feet and you put the tape at 18 inches. And that was by the way we developed that. We were studying deer vision at the time and we found out deer have 2150 vision, which means they're nearsighted. It also means their visual acuity is very low and they can't see HD camo. They really? can't differentiate HD camo. So HD camo is really has no no legitimate function other than to make us look pretty good when we're hunting. <laughs> we look, I call it bar camo, Doc. Yeah, yeah, there you go, walking a lot of that. Yeah, you know, a lot of people hunted for years in plaid shirts and jeans, and uh, Fred Fred Bear is one of my heroes that I kind of, you know, I, he was just an innovator, and, uh, you know, he was one of the first guys to truck the land and carry a camera, you know, and going to places and trying to kill a polar bear when people probably thought he was nuts. But you, you yeah. look at Fred, Fred had a pair of either brown or gray work pants and a flannel shirt and his, his cap. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that uh, when we started, you started talking about that plaid outfit you had. Yeah, we in the south used to call those Elmer Futs. <laughs> but you know what we discovered later on was those were to this day wool, red plant plaid jackets are still the best camouflage there is out there. No kidding. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. The Elmer Fudd. I should admit, but it's true. Huh. That's pretty. You never would have thought that, would you? Nope. No. You never would. Well, Doc, is there anything you'd like to add or anything that you got going on? I've got your contact. If anybody would like to reach out, if you want me to reach, but the, your email is info at drdeer.com. You have three websites. You have drdeer.com which is drdeer.com, buckforge.com, and then wildtree.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Awesome. And they get they on uh, my Facebook page, ask questions, uh, and I, we answer them. That's pretty I cool. I have a good team to work with it that helped me with my social media, and uh, we enjoy that. We've got, I think we got, we're almost at 43,000 now. Something like that. You know, Doc, I think that is, uh, I mean, we're, we've become a society that, you know, that loves celebrities and we love, we love to be entertained. And I think that's probably one of the things that's been missing. Um, and I think that's what I loved about, you know, uh, the Big Buck Profile, your segments, and, and everything was always about history and about education. And which I'm kind of, I'm, I'm big buff on both of those because usually history repeats. If you always do what you always done, you're going to always get what you always got. That's the truth. You betcha. And, and I really appreciate, I mean, when I, like I said, when you speak, people listen. And I really appreciate you taking the time of your busy schedule to, to sit with my wife and I and two little humble servants uh, sitting here to, to, to do our podcast with us and, and be able to share with someone. I have my passion and be able to ask questions. And, and it's just, it's awesome. It's been a great day and break a great podcast. I hope a lot of those of listening had a chance to, to learn a little bit. And if you've been thinking about trying to start your own food plots and remember, you know, food plot slash habitat, it, it kind of all goes together, but uh, doc, I appreciate it. And uh, you being here and, and, um, 
All you listeners out there, if you want to check out Legendary Gear, you can go to legendarygearusa.com. Go to all our, uh, if you like this podcast, I ask you to please subscribe and uh, share the wealth, share the wealth of knowledge. That's what we're all about. But uh, this has been the George Lynch Hunting Podcast and brought to you by Legendary Gear, the game call company that's legend by design. Hopefully we'll see you next week in the field. And remember, always hunt safe, hunt smart, and may the good Lord be your guide. Well, I'll be out there rain shining All a part of the great design Bring it on, I can never get enough Because that's what legends are made of